Uh, We've uh, <clears throat> been in a verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Matthew since November 2016 called Let's Talk About Jesus. And we're in Matthew chapter 24, which is a very uh, exciting passage because in that passage, Jesus talks about the second coming. We introduced it last week with a message in the first 14 verses called Signs because Jesus gives us six signs that will precede His return. It's a great passive scripture. It's a difficult one to preach and teach because, quite honestly, there are a variety of different views and interpretations that people embrace related to end-time prophecy. And I look forward to talking about the next part of that passage. But I'm not going to do that this weekend. I promise I'll return next weekend. Uh, but this morning, I'm going to talk to you about something different. Uh, in a large church, communication is difficult sometimes, and it's good to take advantage of having everybody in one place for certain kinds of announcements. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're glad you're here. This is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do, uh, but uh, I'm trusting that you're here for a reason. It probably sounds odd given the fact that I've been a pastor for a long time and that I'm a whole lot closer to the end of being a pastor than I am the beginning, but I wish the Bible gave a more thorough description of how to be a pastor. I mean, the Bible gives us the qualifications for a pastor. They pretty much revolve around three specific words uh, found in the New Testament. Uh, in the original language of the New Testament, those words are episkopos, which is often translated as overseer or elder, presbuteros, which is translated elder, and poimen, which is translated pastor or shepherd. Episkopos is a word that speaks primarily to character. Presbuteros is a word that speaks primarily to maturity, and poimen is a word that speaks primarily to care. And so the use of those words in the New Testament give us, for the most part, the qualifications of being a pastor. Along with that, the Bible talks about the primary role of a pastor to preach and teach and to shepherd the flock, and it does that in specific passages and in examples. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes and says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ might be built up. And then you look in the book of Acts, and you see, for example, the Apostle Paul, when he planted the church in Corinth and he was the pastor there, we're told in Acts 18.5 that he basically devoted himself exclusively to preaching that Jesus was the Christ. That's what he did more than anything else. You get the first Peter in the New Testament, and in chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. That's that word poimen that I mentioned just a moment ago. And the idea of shepherding is leading and protecting and nurturing. And so, uh, you, you get the qualifications for being a pastor. You get some uh, instruction, a certain amount of instruction in the New Testament about the responsibilities of a pastor. But what we don't find in the Bible is any instruction about how a pastor is supposed to lead or manage his relationship with the church. And every church is different. This is the third church that I've been the pastor of in my life, and each one of them was different and unique. But all the way back in 2004, because I've been here a long time, uh, I preached a sermon that profiled the relationship that the Apostle Paul had with the church in Corinth, the relationship that he had as the pastor of the church in Corinth, the relationship he had with those people. And I've been thinking about that a lot for the last 
few months. Paul had a really deep, deep love for the church in Corinth. On the second of his third missionary journey, and those journeys are chronicled in the book of Acts, Paul spent 18 months in the city of Corinth, and during those 18 months, he planted the church there, and he served as the pastor of the church there. When those 18 months came to an end, he left, but he promised the people in Corinth that he would return. But here's what happened next, and I know this was not what Paul expected. Once he left, word came to him that there was sexual sin going on in the church that wasn't being confronted and dealt with. Now, to be more specific, there was this gross level of sexual immorality happening in the church, and everyone knew about it, everyone. And it's almost as if they celebrated it. They just, they just ignored it, and they just went on business as usual, like they had, you know, the tolerance to celebrate it. But when Paul found out about that, he was deeply, deeply burdened. And so what he did was he sat down and he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth that dealt specifically with sexual immorality and how they should respond to what was happening in the church. And while this letter came from the heart of the Apostle Paul, and while it no doubt contained really sound instruction, here's what we need to understand. It wasn't an inspired letter. And when I say it wasn't an inspired letter, I mean that it ultimately did not become a part of our New Testaments. The very first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth is found nowhere in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul writes and says, all Scripture is inspired by God. That's the way it reads in older translations of the Bible. In my NIV Bible that was translated in 1984, it reads like this, all Scripture is god breathed. That's what the word inspired means. When you say that you believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, it's God breathed. It comes directly from God, every word. All 66 books, the 39 of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New Testament, it all comes directly from God. That's what it means to be inspired. It's the Greek word theopnistos for inspired, literally, God breathed. But that wasn't the way this first letter that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth was, and so it's not found anywhere in the New Testament. Although the content of it can be found, listen to these words. Don't turn there. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. This is the basic content of that first letter. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the, this world who are immoral or the greedy, swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And then this is what Paul said in the end. God will judge those outside, expel the wicked man from among you. He couldn't believe what was happening in the church, and so he sat down and he wrote this letter with this sound, strong instruction about how they should respond to the sexual immorality that was in the church. Well, you'd think that that would be enough to take care of the problem, but it wasn't because the church just continued to have problems, and Paul continued to hear about those problems. We know from two specific passages in 1 Corinthians that people from the church in Corinth were contacting Paul with questions and concerns about what was going on and about Christianity in general. 
Uh, and that's not an uncommon thing. You know, my first church was in Texas. When I left that church in Texas and I went to uh, my second church in Oklahoma for the next year or so, people from my church in Texas were contacting me about questions that they had or things that they were concerned about in the church after I left. When I left my church in Oklahoma and I came to this church here in Indiana for the first couple of years, people from my church in Oklahoma were contacting me about questions they had and concerns they had about the church there since I left. And I'm sure the pastor who was here before me heard from a lot of you for the first couple of years that I was here. <laughs> That's just the way it goes. We, we just have this ongoing connection with the churches we serve. And so Paul was hearing from people in the church that there was continuing to be, there were continuing to be problems, and he's deeply burdened by these things. Because let me tell you something, pastors who love their churches are deeply burdened when their churches struggle. And so what Paul does is two things. First, he sends Timothy, who was his closest ministry associate, to Corinth, so Timothy can teach them and Timothy can lead them. Look at these words on the screen from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. Paul says, for this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful to the Lord. Note this, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, with, with, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. And so... Basically, Paul was like, you know, I can't go running back to Corinth to take care of all their problems, so I'm going to do the next best thing. The next best thing to me physically being there is Timothy, who is so close to me, we share the same heart, is sending Timothy back to Corinth in my place to teach and to lead. The second thing that he did, that's the first thing he did. The second thing that he did was he sat down and he wrote them a second letter. And the second letter was different than the first letter because this second letter was theopneustos. It was inspired. It was God-breathed. It came from God. And the second letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth became 1 Corinthians. That's what we see in our Bible. Now, Paul wrote this while he was in Ephesus at the beginning of his third missionary journey. He spent three years in Ephesus, and while he was there, he planted the church in Ephesus, and he planted all the other churches that we read about in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so by this time, Paul has been in ministry for over 20 years. He's been connected with lots of churches, connected with lots of church leaders, connected with lots of believers, but he can't get the church of Corinth out of his mind because he loves that church so deeply. And that comes through when you read through 1 Corinthians. It's clear that Paul feels this deep responsibility for the overall health of the church and for the spiritual lives of the people there. And it's clear that it's something that weighs heavy on his heart every single day. So much so that at some point during his three years in Ephesus, and remember what he's done so far. He's written them a letter. He sent Timothy. He's written them a second letter. And he, the next thing that happens is at some point during his three years in Ephesus, he leaves the church in Ephesus, he leaves his ministry in Ephesus, and he returns back to Corinth to deal with their problems personally. Now, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail about that, but let me, let me tell you how I, I, we know that that's true. Paul's first visit to the church in Corinth came when he planted the church there during his second missionary journey. He planted the church and he spent 18 months there. That was his first visit. When you get to the end of 2 Corinthians, there's 13 chapters in 2 Corinthians. When you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, Paul writes to them about an upcoming visit. He, he talks about an upcoming visit to the church at Corinth, and this is what he says, this will be my third visit to you. Well, if the first visit was when he planted the church, and if we read about 
the third, uh, the first visit, when we planned the church, we read about the third visit as something upcoming at the end of 2 Corinthians. When was the second visit? It had to have happened at some point during his time in Ephesus. You get a little bit more clarity about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, when Paul writes, or when he, yeah, when he writes this interesting statement, he said, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. When was that? At some point during Paul's three years in Ephesus, he left and visited the church in Corinth. And that visit is described as a painful visit because he went there to deal with their ongoing problems in a very direct and a very forceful way. And so here's what all that means. It means that Paul is so deeply concerned about and so deeply connected to the church in Corinth. Remember, he was the one who planted the church, and he was the first pastor there for 18 months, that this is what he's done. He's written them two letters. He sent his closest spiritual associate, Timothy, to lead them and instruct them, and now he's visited them again in person a second time. And you would think that that would be enough to ease or soothe the spiritual conscience and the burden of Paul and to help these people get their act together but it wasn't. Because when Paul returns to Ephesus after his second visit there, this painful visit, he sits down and he writes them another letter. This now is letter number three. And this letter was a severe letter. It was severe because he was brokenhearted over this church that he had worked so hard to plant and to build. He can't believe the choices that they've made, and he can't believe the depth of their sin. And so he writes a third letter where he just cuts loose and lets them know exactly how he feels about all of this. Look at these words on the screen from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, a little bit of a description of this letter. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love. And this letter, listen to me, friends, by the way, is like the first letter. While it's a personal letter and it comes from the heart of the Apostle Paul and no doubt it included sound instruction, it was not inspired. And so this third letter, like the first letter, is not a part of our New Testaments. This third letter is not our second Corinthians in our New Testaments. It wasn't theopneustos, inspired, God breathed, but it was severe. Here's another description that Paul gives of that letter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, look at these words on the screen. He said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Now, this letter was probably hand-delivered to the church in Corinth by another one of Paul's close, close ministry associates named Titus. That'll make sense in a minute. And even though Paul had every right to write this letter, he regretted it almost immediately. Let me ask you a question. You ever done that? You ever sat down to write a letter? And I know people don't write letters much anymore, but you ever sat down to write an email or have you ever sat down to write out a text and as soon as you pushed send, you wished you had it back because you didn't let your words go through any kind of a filter and you wrote out of emotion and you were deeply concerned about how that letter was gonna be received by the reader? You ever done that? 
That's what was happening here with the Apostle Paul. I really believe that's what was happening here with the Apostle Paul. I believe that's how he felt. Let me give you one example or one reason why I say that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, listen to these words. Paul writes and says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind. Why? Because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now, if you know anything at all about the Apostle Paul and his zeal for the Lord, going to a place named called Troas and finding that God had given him an open door for ministry would have been something that he would have been overjoyed about, off the charts excited about. But he said, I still had no peace of mind. Why? Because he was looking for Titus, and Titus wasn't there, and so he said goodbye and went on to Macedonia. See, Paul is so troubled by what's happening in Corinth and so anxious to hear how they responded to his letter, his third letter, that he's going to have no peace in his life until he talks face-to-face with Titus and finds out how the letter was received. But then we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, and Paul writes these words, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my my joy was greater than ever. And that's why I believe Titus was the one who delivered that letter, because now when Paul gets to see Titus and talk to Titus and hear the news that the people, upon receiving the letter, were convicted and repentant, his attitude has changed completely. And so, having heard that message from Titus, do you know what Paul does? You already know what Paul does, don't you? He sits down and he writes a fourth letter. And the fourth letter was like the second letter in that it was inspired, it was theopneustos, it was God-breathed, and that fourth letter he wrote became 2 Corinthians in our New Testaments. Now... I'm going to stop right there. We could talk a lot more about that. I'm fascinated by this relationship that Paul has with the church in Corinth as a church planter and a pastor and a spiritual leader. And the reason why this particular sermon back in 2004 was so special to me was because it is all so relatable to me. A pastor's relationship with the church is filled with a lot of things. It's filled with moments of great joy, and it's filled with moments of great sorrow, and it's filled with moments of great, at times, uncertainty and anxiety. I have had all of those over the years with every church I've served. Some of my greatest joys have happened in church. Some of my deepest sorrows have happened in church. And some of my greatest moments of anxiety and uncertainty have been connected to church because it's hard to lead a church. It's hard sometimes to know what to say, and sometimes it's hard to know what is the right thing to do. I especially relate to the anxiety Paul felt after writing that third letter, wondering if that was the right thing to do and wondering how people would respond to what he had shared with them. I love this church deeply. We have a powerful ministry here in so many ways. We're a church that makes an impact on our community every day, and we're a church, literally, this is not hyperbole, that makes an impact in different parts of the world every day through our global mission partners. I wish I had time to talk about that in detail this morning. I believe in our vision statement, our mission statement, and the strategies we use to live those things out. 
But after a time of evaluation that included reviewing numbers and growth, since we implemented in particular the third Sunday service, and that happened on January the 8th in 2017, after speaking to a number of different members of my staff about things like volunteer recruitment and Sunday morning ministry programming and the overall stress of a weekend that includes four services, I want to tell you this morning that I believe that we need a bit of a reset in particular when it comes to our Sunday morning service schedule. And I believe that we need to move back to having two services. We've been having three Sunday morning services since January the 8th, 2017. Our Saturday night service will remain the same. Nothing will change there. This wasn't a quick decision. It's something I thought and prayed about for a long time, and it's my decision. If you're going to be unhappy with anybody, you have to be unhappy with me. It's something that I've thought and prayed about for a long time, been weighing on my heart for a long time. It's something I've talked with our elders about, and our elders have been praying about that for a long time. Let me just try to run through some different reasons, specific reasons why. Boy, it got quiet in here all of a sudden. (laughs) There's what I will just call our Sunday morning children's and middle school ministry programming. You know, we have a dynamic children's ministry. We have a dynamic preteen and middle school ministry, and we have dynamic spaces for them. We have the children's ministry space here and the uh, the preteen middle school ministry space across the street. But the truth is, we have such a small number of children and students at two of our three Sunday services, I'm talking about the 845 service and the 1130 service, that these ministries are not being allowed to operate at their full potential. Our, our middle school ministry recently just canceled their programming at 1130. Now, it wasn't that way in the beginning when we first started the three services on Sunday morning. In fact, in the beginning, we, we would have 600 people come to worship at 1130, but, uh, and our 845 numbers were strong, but over the years, those numbers have changed over the two and a half years of doing that. And it's just keeping those ministries from being able to operate their full potential. I believe that those are two of the strongest growth engines that we have here at the church, two of the most attractive things that draw especially young families into our church. And when they're not operating at full capacity, that hurts us. I look at Bibleopolis, our children's space, and think it should be loud and busy and winsome and active and on and on and on, and two of the three Sunday morning services, it's really not that way. Uh, I will just say, number two, that there's volunteer strain. Three Sunday services put an extra strain on recruiting volunteers to serve in different capacities. When we have two services on Sunday morning, it makes it easy to attend one service and volunteer or serve at the other service. um, That's a significant reason why. Number three, I would talk about the staff stress and strain, the stress and strain that places on our staff. Simply stated, a Saturday night service followed by three Sunday morning services puts a lot of stress and strain on many of our staff. Uh, I can tell you that it wears me out, uh, that I am just, I'm just wasted by the time the weekend is over. Last weekend, we had our Saturday night service and three Sunday morning services, and I went home and ate lunch quickly and went and did a funeral service. I left my house at 2.30, and I didn't get back until after 7, and I thought Sandy was going to have to carry me to bed when I walked in the door. I'm not as young as I used to be. The other reason I would say, and I'm going to talk about this one for a few minutes, is I don't believe that three Sunday services is the solution for future growth. That's pretty much the mentality behind why we made the shift two and a half years ago. 
We had our monthly elders meeting this past Tuesday night, and at one point we talked about the speed of change in the world today and how the speed of change in the world today impacts the church as well. I began my ministry here in November of 2001, and there was already a Saturday night service in place, which was unusual. There weren't a lot of churches doing Saturday night services back in those days. And I know that that Saturday night service had been put in place to address a capacity issue. It had been put in place to make room for more people, and it was the absolute right thing to do at that time. But almost 18 years later, I'm telling you that creating more services on the weekend is not the solution for future growth because 18 years later, the availability of people and the choice for many people to make weekend church their first priority has changed. It's changed dramatically. We're in the process of reviewing our membership records and updating our membership records, and we divide people into three categories, active members, semi-active members, and non-active members. And we, and I know this doesn't characterize everyone here, and please don't read more into this than what I'm saying. It's a pragmatic thing. But we characterize active members as someone who attends at least twice a month. Just twice a month. I spend a lot of time thinking about what the future of the church is going to look like, and I'm going to tell you that I think the future of the church is going to include two things. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, may not even be in the top three. (laughs) But here's what I think the church is going to look like in the future. I think the digital church is just going to continue to grow. All these folks, I'm talking about all, all the folks that are joining us online, the opportunity to watch church online. Honestly, I love that we have an online offering. I do. I, I love it. I, I, w- I would not change it. I'm not going to change it. I'm just I'm trying to think of ways that I can make it even better than it is now. But I also think that there's a good and a bad side to having an online option. It's good because it allows us to reach people who simply can't, I mean literally can't, have compelling reasons why they can't come to church in person. A couple of years ago, I was over at Teresa's Hallmark on uh, 135. Shout out to Teresa, who's a member of Mount Pleasant. She's been a member for a long time. I don't know what service she goes to, but we love her. And uh, I, I walked in the door, and somebody from church was walking out the door, and so they said, hey, Pastor Chris. And I, we started talking and probably talking a little bit loud, and all of a sudden, I heard a woman shriek, literally shriek. <laughs> and a woman came around the corner that I didn't recognize and said, it's you. And she walked up, and she grabbed me. She's a woman who watches church online every week, and she told me about how she is homebound because her mother is bedridden, and she cares for her mother. She said, this is the only time of the week I have the opportunity to have someone come in and and give me uh, some relief so I can get out and do some errands, and she said, I can't believe it. She recognized my voice. She heard my voice, and she recognized my voice, and she came around the corner, and I'm so thankful for opportunities like that. That's the really good side of uh, online church. I'm thankful that when Sandy and I travel, like we were, uh, were in Florida, we went to church we found a church that had a Saturday night service. Then on Sunday morning, we, we logged on and we watched church here. And I, I love that opportunity. It's not good when it keeps people who have no real compelling reason not to get up and come to church from experiencing one of the most important parts of church, and that is the physical participation, fellowship, and community that we enjoy when we're together Digital participation will never be the same as physical participation. A digital hug will never be the same as a real hug. 
Think of it like this. Let me say, let's, let me just ask you a question. Let's say that you're in the same season of life that I'm in and that your children are grown and uh, you are a grandparent and they live close by and you have this great relationship. And then one day your children come to you and say, mom and dad, listen, this incredible opportunity has been presented to us uh, to advance my career and to provide for the family, but we're gonna have to move away to experience it. And now all of a sudden your children have gone from being around the corner, your grandchildren around the corner basically to uh, being hundreds if not thousands of miles away. But before they leave, they say to you, mom and dad, while you're standing there sobbing uncontrollably, they say, mom and dad, don't worry because we're going to stay in touch through Skype and through FaceTime and we'll visit when we can. And so they move away and, and they do that, you know, you stay, and stay in touch with you by Skype and you FaceTime with them all the time. But the problem is they don't ever visit in person. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to be satisfied with that? Is that going to be enough for you, ultimately? I don't think any rational person would say yes. I don't think anyone with a heart would say yes. When someone who has no restriction that keeps them from coming to church says, and listen to me, don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at me. I love all of you guys joining online. I'm not trying to make anybody mad. I'm just speaking from the heart. When somebody who has no restriction that keeps him from coming to church says, I'm just going to watch church online today, that's the best option for me. That's the attitude of a consumer. And that doesn't fit with what the New Testament says about the body of Christ being interconnected and the fact that we're all dependent upon one another. In fact, Paul writes over and over again in the Scriptures, instructions using the words one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, and on and on. There are things that we do in person. Church shouldn't be viewed as a place where we consume goods and services rather than a place where we physically participate because you can't know the difference your presence makes when you're not here. And you might think, well, nobody misses me when I'm not here. Well, how do you know? How do you know? The second thing I think about the future is that church is going to move beyond the weekend, and we're already seeing this happening in a lot of churches, especially other megachurches around the country, in that many churches are not just offering their, their weekend service on the weekend, on a Saturday or a Sunday, but they're work, offering on a weeknight as well. My brother is a pastor of a church, or on the staff of a church in Savannah, Georgia. It's a large church. They have several campuses, uh, and uh, together they run about 9,000 people on the weekend. He's one of the campus pastors, and a few years ago, they had a Saturday night service, and they had a Sunday morning service, and a few years ago, they canceled their, sun, uh, their Saturday night service, and they moved it to Wednesday night, and so you can go to church there on Wednesday night and Sunday, and the Wednesday night service is exactly the same as the Sunday morning service. My brother, by the way, is going to be here to preach on the weekend of August 10th and 11th, you'll get to see him. He's been here and preached before, but it's been some time. Uh, I'm going to be busy that weekend being the father of the bride, and I don't want to have to worry about you. <laughs> you should be worrying about and praying for me. But they... They offer the, week, the weekend service on a, on a weeknight, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. Those are the popular nights. And, and it makes sense, I mean, from a pragmatic standpoint, because think about it like this. If someone's regular participation in church on the weekend is limited because of other weekend activities, 
uh, youth sports, any number of activities, uh, music, dance, robotics, scouts, mini vacations, whatever it could be. There's so many different things. Then adding more weekend services is not really going to solve that problem, is it? It's not the answer. That might not be something that we like, but it's something that we can't deny. So we're going to change our Sunday morning schedule from three services back to two. That change is going to begin on the weekend of September 7th and 8th, which is going to be a special weekend for us because we're going to kick off a new series that weekend called Room for Doubt. It's along the lines of the One Life Initiative, the spiritual influence strategy. Uh, Our special guest speaker that weekend is going to be Mark Middleberg, who's an internationally known author, speaker, and Christian apologist. He's collaborated with Lee Strobel on a lot of different books and uh, materials. Lee Strobel was our special guest here at Mount Pleasant last August. Our new Sunday morning service schedule times will be 9.15 and 11 o'clock. We used to meet at 9 o'clock and 10.45. There's no way, friends, listen to me close. There's just no way that I can choose times that make everybody happy. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I tried. I tried every combination possible, but I can tell you that a lot of thought, a lot of discussion, a lot of research went into choosing those times, and you're going to learn more details about all of those things in the week to come, in the weeks to come. And so I'm just asking you to, to embrace and support this new worship schedule. Nothing is going to change in our church except the time that we meet on Sunday morning. I'm going to We're going to worship the same way. I'm going to preach the same way. We're going to continue to do change for a dollar every week. You know that through last weekend, from its inception, we've given $876,000 away through change for a dollar. We're going to hit the $1 million mark sometime around the first weekend of February. We're going to continue to focus on impact and build our impact ministries Uh, Great things happen in our Impact Center back here on uh, our campus every Thursday and Friday, Impact Thursday and Impact Friday. Impact Fairfax and Impact Bethany are both running and operating. Those were two churches, Fairfax Christian Church and Bethany Christian Church in different parts of Indianapolis that had declined to the point where they were going to have to lock the doors and walk away. They couldn't, the, the declining membership couldn't keep those churches going any longer. And so we stepped in and we acquired those churches. We That's the literal terminology. We acquired them. We didn't merge with them. We acquired them. They became a part of Mount Pleasant Christian Church. And our our church presence in those different communities, we don't give them the name Mount Pleasant because the name Mount Pleasant is geographically specific to where we are right now, and it doesn't translate to other areas in the city of Indianapolis. And so we use the words impact. It's impact Christian church, but we just call it impact... uh, Fairfax and Impact Bethany. They're a part of our church. Uh, Impact Old Southside, which is something we've been uh, working on for a long time. Uh, Jed Fuller is our pastor. He and his wife, Adrian, are here in the service uh, this morning. And uh, Jed, they've lived down in that community for the last couple of years and, and doing incredible things. We bought a building on Meridian Street, and it's been frustrating getting it done. Uh, but uh, it's been remodeled, and we're hopeful that by the end of this month, we'll have an inspection and at least get a temporary certificate of occupancy so we can begin to use that. And so we'll have our campus here in Greenwood, and we'll have our Impact uh, Fairfax campus, our Impact Bethany campus, and we'll have our Impact Old Southside campus. Uh, Lots and lots of great things are happening in our church. We're going to continue to make an impact through our global mission partners. I was on the phone yesterday morning for about 20 minutes with Ajay Law in India, our strongest mission uh, uh, support uh, or partner. Um, We're going to 
Uh, we've already given $390,000 because of your generosity to build a hospital there that's going to impact millions of people. He talked about that the last time he was here. I told him we we're going to send another generous gift because of your generosity. And I wish I could go on and on and on, but I just the clock just ran down to zero. I love uh, the church. I love the church. I love the, the local church. I believe in the power of the local church to be used by God to change people's lives because I've seen that happen over and over again the last 40 years and because over 50 years ago, a uh, little, little local church on the west side of Tulsa, Oklahoma changed the life of my family and changed my life. I would be lying if I said this decision hadn't been weighing on my heart for a long time and I have... I'd be lying if I'd said that I didn't feel anxious about it because every time we make a change, it's upsetting to some people and some people think the sky is falling and they leave. I hope that you don't choose to do that. But just like with the example of the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth, what you need to know is that I feel a deep level of responsibility for this church and for each and every one of your lives. And I just try to lead in a way that honors God and builds the kingdom and takes care of you. And so I'm asking you to embrace and support this change.